Faith is a response to hope and it's a response to fear. And we have to decide which of those things we're going to feed. Do we want to feed our sense of hope or do we want to feed our sense of fear? And do we want to fear our sense of abundance or do we want to fear our sense of scarcity? We have a lot of power and by choosing which aspects of our faith we want to strengthen, we exert that power in the world. We fall again and again. All of us are slaves until all of us are free. Everyone needs sanctuary. I'm your host, Tiffany Jelke, and this is In Their Own Voices where we learn about refugees and put their stories in the heart of the data. On this episode, we'll hear the story of Faith for Dallas. Two reverends, a rabbi, and an imam are just a few of many faith leaders working together to foster greater community of respect and compassion for all. Faith Forward Dallas is a beacon of hope, healing, and understanding for the community. Located at Thanksgiving Square in downtown, They are a broad and diverse coalition of faith leaders dedicated to service and a shared vision for the North Texas community. Imam Omar Suleiman is the founder and president of the Akeen Institute for Islamic Research and an adjunct professor of Islamic studies in the Graduate Liberal Studies Program at SMU. He is also the resident scholar at Valley Ranch Islamic Center and co-chair of Faith Forward Dallas at Thanksgiving Square. Imam Suleiman's video, An Imam, A Pastor, and a Dream, with Reverend Andy Stoker, landed him squarely in the sights of ISIS, who called for his death for preaching a message of unity between faiths. Suleiman is known for his direct approach to addressing issues like Islamophobia, policy that unconstitutionally affects Muslims across the board, and Christianity that doesn't follow the example of Christ. I spoke with him about the fear of Muslims, or Islamophobia, that has been used to justify recent policy. Um, Recognize that these fears are manufactured. We have to be willing to objectively assess the situation around us. There hasn't been a Muslim attack on U.S. soil since November, but how many mass shootings and stabbings and now in Austin, the bombings that have taken place that were not done by any Muslims. And the refugee community in particular is not guilty of anything. But then, well, what about Muslims? Well, I think that the greatest way that you can cause that to subside is by actually meeting Muslims. I always tell people that ask a Muslim how they feel about Islam. Go to your local mosque or reach out to some local Islamic organizations. Once you break that barrier, you'll feel a lot different about the entire situation. But can we just go to a mosque to meet a Muslim? Yes, the vast majority of mosques love visitors. There have been a lot of open mosque days and and a lot of activities that are meant to connect to the broader community. Obviously, as a Muslim, I'm going to be more self-critical of my community and say we should do more. But for all purposes, I mean, the Muslim community has reached out. And most mosques are very happy when someone walks in to get to know the Muslim community better. And the agenda is not convert, convert, convert. There's a large movement in evangelical Christianity today against immigrants and refugees, particularly Muslims. What do you think evangelical Christians are missing 
that you Jesus. think they <laughs> good one. I think evangelical Christians need Jesus. <laughs> the real Jesus. The real Jesus. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean the the social Jesus. The you see, Muslims and Christians will not agree on the divinity of Christ. Recognize that the disconnect that's taking place right now between quote unquote conservative Christianity and the average American. Uh, is only growing because it's more tone deaf. It's it's less human. There's no compassion, and I don't know how you can talk about Jesus without talking about and demonstrating compassion. So in Islam, we claim Abraham, Moses, Jesus, as well as Muhammad, um, peace be upon them all. We view them all as prophets. They were all refugees at one point. How can you claim to be a follower of any of those men and then justify shutting the door, you know, in the faces of people that are escaping persecution? There's a famous social experiment done about a year ago in the Netherlands where the Bible was disguised as a Quran and verses were read to passersby on the street. It disgusted readers, reinforcing their views that Muslims are violent and bad. They were shocked when they learned the verses were from the Bible. In that vein, I thought we could dispel a few myths with Imam Suleiman. So I asked him about certain words, terminology, and ideas in Islam that many Americans are completely misinformed about. We began with the word jihad. So the word jihad um, means struggle and predominantly refers to the inner struggle, uh, the struggle against one's own vices. So the idea that jihad means like holy war, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, mentioned that the very term war is hated to God. There is no quote-unquote, holy war. An easy example that I give people is that if you want to judge the Muslim community by ISIS, then I'll judge Christianity by the KKK. And don't tell me they're not around. They're still around. So (laughs) I don't believe Islam is violent. I believe there are people that are Muslims that are capable of being violent. And it's a human condition of power and greed and political agendas that truly drive, uh, drive these groups and drive these people. My jihad is taking care of refugees. It belongs also to the poor immigrants who were driven out of homes and property as they sought the favor of God and his good pleasure and came to the aid of God and his messenger. These are truly sincere. And those who, before them, had made their home in this city with faith in their hearts They love those who immigrated to them, and in their hearts nurse no envy for what others have been granted, who, even when needy, prefer them to themselves. Whoso is guarded against his own soul's avarice, these shall win through. And those who came afterwards say, O Lord, forgive us and our brothers who preceded us in faith. Do not plant malice in our hearts towards those who believed. O Lord, you are all tender, compassionate to each. From the Quran, Surah 59, verses 8 through 10. We talked about Sharia and how, really, Islamic terms have been hijacked by Americans who know very little about Islam. Again, it's a new term every day that's problematized. Sharia refers to uh, our religious practice. Uh, so if you want to ban Sharia, that means I can't pray anymore. That means I can't eat um, uh, as I please, uh, or I can't fast in the month of Ramadan. So Sharia does not equal, um, you know, government system. And Muslims 
are loyal citizens. There's nothing in the Constitution uh, that as Muslims we cannot abide by. Um, and that's why Muslims are, you know, by and large, outstanding citizens um, on on all levels, socially, economically, politically. Um, you know, Muslims uh, are, are a well-integrated minority in this country. It was jihad, then it was suddenly sharia, then it was, oh my God, they're taking over less than 1% of the country. Uh, this oppressed minority in this country has... has uh, infiltrated all levels of government to the point that more than half of the states in the United States need to pass anti-Sharia legislation. Um, and we need to send loyalty tests to Muslims. I actually got a loyalty test from a Texas state representative and it was sent to all the Muslim leaders in Texas. We had to, you know, that, that we, that we would have uh, placed the constitution um, above uh, the Sharia law. So <laughs> it, it just evolves. And then there's, there's a new term. It's, it's taqiyya. So taqiyya is um, supposedly Islamically sanctioned lying. So what that means is that we can lie about our traditions so that we can further Islam in, uh, in different countries. So it's like, all right, so if I give you the answer that you do want, then I'm lying. And if I give you the answer that you do, do not want, then, you know, see, I told you so. So it's like, we're stuck. So there's no way for us to actually define ourselves because when we define ourselves, we, you know, there's been such a great level of mistrust that's been created about the Muslim community that you can't trust their answers because ultimately it leads to internment. Um, and there have been suggestions that Muslims should, Muslim Americans should be interned. What about the common view that women are oppressed in Islam? Um, so hijab, to the vast majority of Muslim women, is seen as a tool of empowerment, not as a tool of subjugation. And, and don't take it from me. Ask a Muslim woman how she feels about her hijab, why she wears her hijab. Um, usually as an imam, when people come to me, uh, it's not about a, a young woman that's been forced to cover. It's about a young woman that wants to cover and her parents are freaking out about her covering her head because they're worried about the Islamophobic environment that we're in right now. Now, when it comes to what you see around the world in terms of uh, abuse towards women, those issues are regional, not religious conditions. But I also would like people, and, and maybe this is, and you know, I think this is where I have a big mouth and, and I, because I'm fully American, I'm from New Orleans. I, you know, I, I view myself as able to critique my own country just as I could critique Muslims around the world. I'm, I'm not going to apologize for the actions of a few Muslims around the world. And instead, um, we just have to have consistent principles. Let's also not take away from the fact that as Americans, we tend to project backwardness on different parts of the world and not acknowledge our own social flaws. The abuse of women here in the United States, uh, trafficking and slavery here in the United States, mass incarceration, child marriage, all of these things are prominent in our society. Just because we package them differently doesn't make us more civilized than any other part of the world. And so when things start going wrong, this is because of them and because of them, and look, they're infiltrating, look, this is happening. But let's also take responsibility and acknowledge our own flaws as a society. In the same breath that I will condemn terrorism done by ISIS, I will condemn American imperialism. Uh, it's it's all uh, murdering innocent people. So I think we have to acknowledge all of these things and just consistently be for human life and, and try to alleviate the human condition. When, when Dr. King uh, called the United States government the greatest perpetrator of violence in the world, we have to acknowledge that. We have to own that. Mm -hmm. So we create situations of detriment around the world. And then we shut the doors to the victims of that of those situations that we 
partially or sometimes wholly create. Today, the world is experiencing the largest migration crisis since World War II, with over 65.6 million people forcibly displaced. Some is due to famine, some to wars or civil conflict. In the midst of this, countries across Europe began to slam the door on those fleeing for their lives. In January of 2017, the U.S. followed suit when President Trump signed an executive order to completely ban travel to the U.S. by citizens of mostly Muslim countries. In the resulting confusion, chaos ensued at airports. Few knew how to implement the orders properly, and hundreds of travelers already screened and cleared to come visit family, get medical treatment, and students returning to school were suddenly detained at airports across the country. One of those was DFW International Airport, where protests erupted in response. What's the situation right now? What's happening? What's happening is like my family and a lot of families here who are coming from countries that apparently is banned by the President Trump is being detained inside and are going to have to leave back to their countries. Who are you waiting for? I'm waiting for my father and mother. From where? Uh, they're Syrians, but they live in Saudi Arabia. Gotcha. How long have you been here? I've been here for three years, give or take, and my family used to visit us regularly between these years, like every summer, spring break, we would go on family vacations and stuff. So this was like a real shocker for me when we came today and my family were like, we're detained and they want to take us back on a plane. Are you a U.S. citizen? Uh, no. Are you here with a green card? Or a I'm a F1 visa as a student. And what are, were they traveling with a visitor visa? Yes, they have, I think it's a B1, B2 visa which is like a um, tourist visit visa. The way that the story broke first and foremost was that there were some parents of some SMU students that were detained at the airport. And it was tens of them uh, that were detained at the airport. Dallas is a, is a big hub for Emirates flights and Qatar flights and a lot of the flights that come from overseas from the Muslim world. And there had been these families that had been at the airport all day at that point, not hearing anything. So when we took to the airport and we were seeing both children of parents that were detained as well as parents whose children were detained, you just see families that have been there all day and you could tell that they were exhausted. And the momentum picked up really quickly that night. I actually made my way there and I posted online. I, I didn't know how far Facebook status would go, but like head to the airport now. And then it was like 4,000 shares by that night. And the, the evening, you know, the airport was just completely full. And seeing those families light up then with the support that they were getting, there was just sort of this, uh, we know that this is going to work itself out, uh, that there's no way that the airport's going to be able to function if we stay uh, with this type of crowd and with this type of momentum. We were coming to find out some of the stories of these people that were back there. Elderly parents, you had a baby, an infant that was under two years old that was back there. And I think most profound story of them all. The last detainee at DFW was an Iraqi man whose name was Isa, which, which means Jesus. And he had a broken pelvis because he was a military contractor for the U.S. Army, and he suffered that uh, broken pelvis while assisting the U.S. military. And he almost died out of pain back there. I mean, he was in such pain. People were not given proper beds. They weren't given proper food or drink or anything like that and this guy was just an excruciating pain back there and to me that was the point and you know what does that say about the christianity of the evangelical christian who supports the muslim ban what does it say about the patriotism 
of the Trump supporter, you know, who's claiming that they're doing this in the name of defending the country, that this Iraqi military contractor named Jesus was detained because of this bigotry and was suffering because of his assistance to the U.S. military, yet some people found that justifiable. There was religious rhetoric that was being used to justify that, especially uh, Robert Jeffress here in Dallas, that divinely sanctioned Trump's Muslim ban as this righteous action that was taken in defense of the country and in the defense of our culture. Rabbi Kasten shared what Judaism has to say about refugees and immigrants. And I heard about the travel ban and the intention of this new administration to backtrack on our commitment as Americans to refugees and immigrants and international people worldwide. There was no question in my mind that this was something that I would not be able to accept. And so when I heard about the airport demonstration, you know, I hopped in my car, I picked up my husband here at Temple Emanuel. So the antithesis of what it meant to me to be a citizen of this country, to be the granddaughter of immigrants who came to this country as Jews who had been persecuted in their countries of origin. This was something that I just could not sit by and watch happen. And when I got to the airport and was surrounded by people of all ages, all colors, all faiths, with all kinds of signs and chants and both pain and commitment and felt enveloped by this sense that I was not alone in my feeling about what America is and what America has been and what America needs to continue to be. Linda Abramson Evans is a Jewish member of the Thanksgiving Square Interfaith Council, associate of Faith Forward Dallas and founder of the Committee on Refugees of the United Nations Association Dallas Chapter. She's a fixture in the local refugee community, having dedicated 20 years of work on a volunteer basis. And she created the Volunteer Guide and Directory of Refugee Service Agencies in Dallas-Fort Worth. In recent years, she has been honored with the 2016 Dallas Peace and Justice Center Peacemaker Lifetime Achievement Award, the 2017 SMU Outstanding Faculty and Staff Volunteer Award for Exemplary Community Service Beyond the University, and the 2018 Council on American Islamic Relations, DFW, Social Justice Excellence Award. Linda was one of the first to respond to the DFW airport detentions. She describes how everyone was feeling that day. We are not willing to allow this to happen. People are outraged. It is not acceptable. It's not humane. It has opened our eyes to many aspects of life in our community that we might take for granted, realizing that others are being stripped of basic rights of freedom of movement and even freedom of religion. The, the fact that it is primarily a Muslim travel ban, I think, reflects a lot of ignorance and intolerance. Silence is acquiescence and not acceptable. That is just as harmful as taking an active role in causing harm, to be silent and to do nothing. The Reverend Dr. Michael W. Waters is founder and senior pastor of Joy Tabernacle African Methodist Episcopal Church in Dallas. As pastor, professor, author, community leader, and social commentator, Waters' words of hope and empowerment inspire national and international audiences. 
He joined us to talk about the DFW airport detentions and how racism played a role. Uh, the humanity of the entire experience, this idea of keeping people away from their families, the very clear discriminatory practice, the pains of that separation. I mean, it's more than just a tiredness of a long journey, but you've journeyed this far to be connected with loved ones only to be told, no, you cannot because of the faith you practice and because of basically the xenophobic rhetoric and ideals that have been connected not only to your faith, but also to your skin color. I believe that this is very racial as well, and it's the, the nature of intersectionality is to be able to see your oppression historically in the oppression of others and then to join together in eradicating that oppression. And so I see a very close association between the experience of black Americans and particularly of immigrant communities that are of the Muslim faith. Uh, we know, we being the African-American community, black community in America, we know what it feels like to be discriminated based upon how you look. We know what it feels like to have our houses of worship and even our homes targeted because of our presence within the nation. And that's happening exactly uh, to our Muslim brothers and sisters, uh, particularly those who are immigrating and those who have been here uh, for some time. If, I'm, if I have one point of issue, it is that more black churches and that more black Americans have not responded to this issue in kind, have not made that connection between our historical experience and the current experience of so many immigrants within America. Rabbi Kasten shared what Judaism has to say about refugees and immigrants. Our scriptures were written in order to um, both describe some of our um, human tendencies, both for good and for bad, and to give us examples of what happens when we act for the benefit of all and when we act in ways that are self-interested and oppressive to others. I think that what we need to do as people of faith and as faith communities is to continue to ask ourselves, what do we think God really wants this world to look like? What do we think God really wants us to be doing to promote that world? And here's Waters on Christianity. From my faith, we know that the Christ was a refugee fleeing from oppression with his family as a child and finding sanctuary in the country of Egypt. And so it's impossible to be a person of Christian faith and not also have genuine concern for refugees today if the Christ himself were a refugee. The question would be for me is, say we went back 2,000 years ago in time, would we be those who are welcoming Christ and his family into our society? Or will we be those who were forcing them away or trying to close our borders to them? I would hope that uh, for me, for my family, for our community, we would not be found amongst those who would keep the Christ away. And I think that's just a very important biblical and theological image for us to wrestle with today. Uh, all children, all families, all people are precious in God's sight. And when they are in need, we have a moral and spiritual responsibility to do all we can to help them and to support them. Uh, I know that's not just true for the Christian faith, 
but it is true for many faiths. This encouragement to welcome the refugee, the foreigner, the stranger into your midst. And in fact, a part of some of our sacred texts uh, even suggests that you have to be careful not to reject certain strangers because you might be entertaining angels unaware. Um, so we, we have to see and interact with everybody as though there was a possibility of them being amongst the hosts of heaven. And if they are, we should welcome them with open arms. Reverend Andy Stoker, senior pastor of First United Methodist Church, Dallas, who has forged a friendship between his congregation and that of Imam Suleiman's Islamic Faith Center, explained why he believes we've developed such fear and suspicion of Muslims and immigrants. There's a great book that was just actually published three weeks ago. It's by a man named Johan Hare, H-A-R-I. And the book is called Lost Connections. The premise of the book is that we have grown so insulated from the other that we have actually lost the very thing that has caused us to live, that caused us to change, that has caused us to open our eyes for creativity and innovation. So we're actually missing out on what is creative and innovative in in and around us because we've lost this touch with people. We explore what that lost connection looks like to former refugee-turned-advocate Cedric and Twally. It makes me feel so disappointing when I see even some, you know, religious groups, uh, the, the minority ones, because to be honest, the majority that I know are pro-refugee uh, issues. And it's really disappointing when I see some other groups uh, not involved or don't care, and it just asks, you know, it just made me ask myself why, you know, why? Because it, it doesn't matter if you, re- you read the Bible or Jewish Bible or Quran or all that. This is just stories of people from one place to another seeking a refuge and place and, you know, doing this and that. And I, I feel like church is supposed to be a place of welcome. Uh, without tension of people, wherever where they're from and who they are. Church of Faith organizations should be uh, a safe place, I would say, for refugees and immigrants to where they can feel at least self where the system, the regime, the politics, the whatever oppression they might have against them. At least churches of faith organizations are the place where they will feel really good. But again, there are some other church or some other people that they don't care. And I will also say that maybe they just know they don't care, just not, not their priority, you know. And, you know, sometimes to be reached out in one way or another to making sure that they can also be part of this movement. Because, uh, as I said, you know, uh, sometimes we don't have to blame, but we need to reach out and see the reactions. Because some people are just, you know, out of loop. They hear just things on the news and the newspaper, but they never encounter that. They never maybe encounter refugee or hear the story. In Dallas, that awareness is being spread. As Faith Forward Dallas and congregations across the city model how faith can be practiced, in the most powerful ways to bring community together and celebrate the human spirit. Here's Reverend Stoker talking about what it felt like to share a message of unity with a mosque and then sharing that same message with his home church. I was so overwhelmed looking into the loving eyes of these wonderful neighbors who had just completed their prayer for the day and they wanna hear a message of hope a message of new birth, 
of new life, of grace. And when I was preaching at on Christmas Eve, I stood up to preach Christmas Eve and I saw the same eyes, the same, same longing for hope, the same longing to hear a message of new birth and transformation. Uh, the message translates. Uh, the powerful connection we have with one another translates. The more we keep people at arm's length, the more we're robbing ourselves of a deep richness that you can only find in partnership and in friendship. But if the message translates, what's keeping so many today from just trying to build rewarding faith communities for everyone? Linda and Reverend Stoker respond to this question. You know, I, I prefer to think that most of what we see manifested as intolerance and hatred could actually come from lack of knowledge and uh, not having had the opportunity to really know anybody personally. But once you sit down with someone uh, at dinner and, or just as a friend and share personal experiences and as people, you see that this is not someone to fear. These are people who have much reason to fear others now because of what has happened in this recent time. And especially Muslim refugees are put into the most difficult position of being labeled as terrorists when in fact they are the victims of terrorists. They are fleeing persecution and you know their lives are at risk not only from uh, their own governments or from you know, war and conflict, the reasons that generate refugees, they are often pursued you know, by terrorists as well. And it's, it's just a horrible irony that then they are painted with this brush. From an evolutionary standpoint, fear, fear has its purpose. Uh, fear keeps us safe. Fear keeps us uh, locked behind closed doors. Fears, fear keeps us uh, away from danger. Fear, uh, fear has a way of uh, providing a sense of security, either real or imagined. Fear has its role. It is the risk of love, the risk of compassion that draws us closer, not just to the other as in a neighbor, but the risk of love actually draws us closer to God. And the great irony is the risk of love draws us closer to who we really are, draws us inward. It goes back to what Jesus, what Jesus talked about. Jesus is stopped on the street with this question, hey, hey, Jesus, when you wrap up all of the law and all the prophets, what do they come down to? And Jesus says, love God and love neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus could have stopped at loving neighbor, period. But he added this interesting phrase that has been absolutely ignored by much of the Christian tradition. As yourself, love your neighbor as yourself, that engaging in this kind of risking love, risking compassion, risking curiosity about the other, we actually discover what is inward and what is the very breath of God within us. In Texas last year, Seven anti-refugee-specific pieces of legislation were proposed. 
None of them passed, but all of them would have been a drastic departure from Texas's reputation as a welcoming state of warm Southern hospitality. In light of this, I asked Dr. Waters if there is hope. I mean, there's always hope, and, and the minute you lose hope, you, you lose your will to fight and to believe in a, in a better world. So there's always hope. And we can see, as Dr. King talked about, you know, uh, reconstituting words that were spoken before him, this idea of this long arc of, uh, of the moral universe that bends towards justice. I think we have to recognize that sometimes that bend is a lot slower than we would like. And then even as it is bending, there are others who are trying to bend it back. And so we have to remain commit, committed to bending it towards justice. Uh, it's hard to, for me to look and say there's nothing that's changed because so, so much has changed. Uh, those who come before us, their sacrifices accomplished a lot. Now, it's, it's our responsibility to say, but the work is not completed. And, and they knew the work was not completed. They just wanted to make sure that they were able to hand off to a, the baton to generations who will continue to advance their work. And so the hope from all of this is that there's so many communities that are now speaking up and standing up and finding one another so that they can gain strength from each other in the struggle. So this is a very challenging time, but it's a very hopeful time. I, I, I hear the words of, of Dickens, you know, the, the worst of times and the best of times. In many ways, we're living that reality right now, but I think it's through our, our moral resistance and commitment to peace and justice that we will ultimately have victory.
Deepest gratitude goes out to Julie Silver for the use of her song, Sanctuary. This has been Refugee Stories in Their Own Voices. Join us on our final episode in a few weeks when we take you deep into the heart of the community of vibrant, resilient, and inspiring refugees in Dallas. We'll visit a shop that hires refugee artisans who learn to sew and sell their clothing and handiwork. An organization that is teaching Rohingya refugees the art of weaving baskets while gaining confidence in a strange new land. And we'll visit a local mosque, as Imam Suleiman suggested, to find out exactly what lies just out of sight in our everyday lives. Thank you for listening. This podcast is made possible by a grant from Southern Methodist University's Embry Human Rights Program. You can find us on Facebook by searching In Their Own Voices. We end this episode with a special clip from the film Imam Suleiman and Reverend Stoker made about their communities coming together for fellowship. The film caused ISIS to call for the death of Imam Suleiman because of its peacekeeping message. It's entitled, An Imam, a Pastor, and a Dream. Reverend Stoker begins by telling us about the experience of creating this powerful message in real life to introduce us to the film that portrayed that message. And so Stronger Together was uh, was one of those, uh, as, as has been my relationship with Omar, um, there's so much synergy in our relationship that we just kind of fell into this opportunity. We're, First United Methodist Church sits in the Arts District on a really busy corner. Why not? It was the day before Thanksgiving. Everybody is leaving from work at one o'clock in the afternoon. We came in my office and we painted this poster uh, stronger together. And um, and it was powerful to see people slow down on the street, uh, shouting words of thanks, um, yelling at us, happy Thanksgiving, uh, praying for you both. Not one time did we hear, get off the street, you're all wrong. It was all about gratitude and grace in that moment. Yes, we had our, I had my academic robe on and he had, uh, he had his pyramid on. And as we, as we were on the street, uh, it was a profound moment. Um, people were, were going to the museums right after lunch and they'd, they stopped us and they asked us, what does the sign mean? And we told them the sign means stop and 
talk to those who are different and you may just find a friend. And that's what they did. And of course, everybody took their picture with Omar, but I, I, I didn't feel badly about that at all. But anyway, moving on, moving on. Uh, but it was, it was a great, it was a great experience. And to see, to see people's faces light up, um, to know and recognize in themselves that there was something potentially about not just our relationship, but gave them the idea for themselves to embrace someone that they had drawn apart from. And that at the heart of the matter is truly the human reconciliation movement. How do we draw closer together so that we can remain stronger together for the long haul? We're going to need one another. More, the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced we need one another in order to not just survive. That sounds so cliche. We need one another. We need to become stronger together in order to thrive together. And when we thrive, we can see and sense far beyond our differences and begin to truly take on what it looks like to be partners in faith, in hope, and in love for our community, and we pray the world. And now, here's the audio from the film, And a Mom, a Pastor, and a Dream. The night of the election, I, like many others, didn't get a minute of sleep. My phone and email inbox were immediately flooded with messages of anxiety, particularly from young Muslim sisters. In the midst of all that, the first message of support I received was from Reverend Andy Stoker, First United Methodist Church, one of the oldest churches in Dallas. I've worked with Andy and other faith leaders for the last few years on various social issues through Faith Forward Dallas, and I had just spoken at his church the Sunday before the election. The email read, Omar, I'm here for you. I believe in your work and I believe in you. We are better together than apart. If there's anything I can do to be a conversation partner for you or your community, I am here, praying for you and your community, Andy. In a follow-up message he wrote, if the overwhelming vote this election was for change, then let's change our isolation by philosophy and practice within neighborhoods, houses of worship, and each other. Thank you for representing the best of humanity through your faithfulness. I sent Andy many messages of genuine appreciation and wanted to respond to his call. So I invited him and his family over to our mosque to meet our community. It was an incredible experience for his family and for our community. The morning after that night, he sent a message saying, thank you so much for last night. I am transformed by my experience with your congregation. Andy had no idea how much his message and friendship meant to me and my community. There's so many things that we can say about who we are and how we live out our faith. What I've seen in Imam Omar, his life and mine, and his ministry in our city is profound. There are ways that we are growing as a city and as a people in compassion and unity and hope. It is what I've seen in Omar that makes me a better Christian and makes me a better faith leader. Stepping out in faith, in hope, and in love, knowing that all people, in all places and all times, need to hear that one message. That one message that they are loved, that they're believed in, that they're wanted, and that there's so much more. I give God thanks on a daily basis 
for my ministry partnership with Omar, for his life, his family's life, and ours together as we are building a faith community where all people might truly know the sense and power of who it is and how we all must live as one. When the great Imam Ahmed was dying, his Christian doctor asked his permission to allow his pastor to visit. Imam Ahmed invited him in. The pastor said to Imam Ahmed, I've been waiting for so many years to meet you in person. Your life was not just a blessing to the people of Islam. It was a blessing to all of God's creation. And there is not a single one of us that wasn't pleased with you. The story changed my life because Imam Ahmed's presence on earth was not just viewed as beneficial to the Muslims, but to all people. God describes the tree of faith in the Quran with a firm foundation, with branches high in the sky, always providing shade and fruit. The branches show that your shade should provide shade to everyone and everything around you, and that the fruits of your faith should not be seasonal. Everyone and everything around you should benefit from your faith. As Ali said, lead such a life that when you die, the people may mourn you, and while you are alive, they long for your company. When Abu Bakr was on his way out of Mecca to escape persecution to Abyssinia, a non-Muslim chief stopped him and said, Oh Abu Bakr, a man like you should not be allowed to leave his homeland, nor should he be driven out. I am your protector. Go back and worship your Lord in your country. The chief wasn't Muslim, but he recognized that Abu Bakr was indispensable because of his impact on society at large. Serving others doesn't mean you accept their beliefs. It means that your beliefs guide you to serve them. Serving them says nothing about their faith, but everything about yours. As believers, we seek to reflect God's attributes of mercy and generosity, and in turn, we hope that those people will bear witness to our mercy in the presence of the Most Merciful. Oh